In the year 1859, a German scholar named Konstantin von Tischendorf emerged from an ancient monastery with a manuscript that would become known as the oldest complete Bible ever found. It was named the Codex Sinaiticus. A vast majority of what modern scholars believe about the Bible today comes from the examination of this particular manuscript. The British Library has claimed it is the ancestor of all the Bibles in the world. But what impact has it had on the world and the church? In fact, it might be said that whenever someone claims that the Bible cannot be the inspired or inerrant Word of God, they will almost always point to Codex Sinaiticus as the reason why. Yet, what is typically unknown is that shortly after Constantine von Tischendorf published this manuscript, a Greek paleographer named Constantine Simonides came forward and spent four years arguing that Codex Sinaiticus was no ancient manuscript at all, but a modern work that he had created in 1840. Simonides spent four years presenting many details to prove his argument, and repeatedly challenged Tischendorf to a public debate. But Tischendorf refused to show up, and Simonides' claims were eventually swept aside. In time, the Codex Sinaiticus would be used to replace the traditional Greek text that had been used by the Protestant Reformation and stood for some 300 years beforehand. The Codex Sinaiticus would go on to be considered among the two oldest and most reliable manuscripts in Bible history. If you open your Bible to the last chapter of the Gospel of Mark, you will most likely find a footnote around verse 9 that says something like this. Verses 9 through 20 are not found in the two most ancient manuscripts, the Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. In fact, whenever you find a footnote that refers to the most ancient manuscripts, it almost always pertains to Codex Sinaiticus. Because of its influence on both the church and the world's understanding of the Bible, it is imperative that Christians, above all others, understand the real history behind this particular work. One of the most startling features of the Codex Sinaiticus is its many revisions or corrections which number in the tens of thousands. To understand the devastating impact these revisions have had on the perception of the scriptures, let's begin with an audio clip from a BBC documentary called Codex Sinaiticus, The World's Oldest Surviving Bible. On closer inspection, the text of the Codex Sinaiticus is littered with revisions. It is history's most altered biblical manuscript, and within those changes lie its real theological secrets. It has approximately 23,000 corrections in all that survives, which is an extraordinary rate of correction. It means that there, on average there are about 30 corrections on each page. Given the quality of the calligraphy, 
scholars were surprised to find so many changes. Many scribes wrote for money. They wrote quickly, which meant they sometimes made errors. But 23,000 corrections can't be explained in this way. There have to be theological reasons too. You have people, individuals, agreeing, disagreeing about what is the biblical text. If the biblical text could vary, it couldn't be the immutable word of God. What the Codex Sinaiticus was revealing was the instability of the story. This volume is the oldest surviving copy of the New Testament, complete. This is the ancestor of all the Bibles that everybody else has in the world. Okay, praise the Lord, you guys, and welcome to this special edition audio CD, Codex Sinaiticus, the oldest Bible or a modern hoax. The oldest Bible or a modern hoax. Now, I wanted to, there in the introduction, I wanted to make sure we covered certain uh, issues so that you understand what's at stake with this particular subject and this particular Manuscript. Now we're going to talk mostly about Codex Sinaiticus and the controversy surrounding Const, uh, Constantine Simonides, the Greek paleographer who claimed to be the real author of the Codex. This uh, audio CD is really a follow-up to the documentary that we recently released, Tears Among the Wheat. And for those of you who have seen that, uh, some of this information will be familiar uh, to you. However, what I wanted to do, because I spent uh, several years studying this whole subject, and there's so many details and so much exhaustive evidence surrounding the Simonides affair, that I wanted to have a separate opportunity to talk about that information specifically and in greater detail, to give those of you who really want to know what's going on with Sinaiticus and uh, another Codex, Codex Vaticanus, which we're going to talk about also, because one pertains to the other. They're said to be sister manuscripts or cousins. Uh, some people believe they were created by the same scribe uh, or that the same scribes worked on both of them. There's a lot of controversy and, uh, needless to say, there's a lot of disagreement, even among the secular academics and, and we're going to talk about that, and I'm going to play you some audio clips to help you understand. But notice the BBC documentary audio that we just listened to, where you have the BBC narrator, and he's talking about all of the revisions, the 23,000 revisions that today the British Library reports are throughout Codex Sinaiticus. Now, that's very interesting because when Constantine von Tischendorf first discovered the manuscript and uh, examined it back in 1859, he discovered or he documented some 14,800 revisions. Now, I imagine that the British Library's, you know, their defense of the 23,000 
which is a substantially greater number, is because they are said to have found additional pages of the manuscript later on. So I imagine that, even though I haven't found a quote where they actually come out and say that, the uh, Codex Sinaiticus project in England that was concluded in 2009, if you go online, you go on the internet, and you type in Codex Sinaiticus or codexsinaiticus.org, you'll find the website that they created for this particular manuscript. And they spent a number of years examining the manuscript page by page by page. We went to the British Library. I was there uh, back when they were in the middle of investigating all of this back in 2008. And they had not yet completed their study. Uh, but they you know, scan every page of the manuscript and they were going to cover all the details of it in a way that had never been done before and put the information on this website, and of course you can find it there today. And part of what they were going to do is to uh, put forth the history, what they call the agreed-upon history of the manuscript, based upon talking to the monks at St. Catherine's Monastery, where the manuscript was found, and then examining the historic records, the available historic records, about the uh, history of the Codex. Now, what is amazing is that if you go to their website today and you read their description of the history, they don't mention any of the actual documented history from 1859 up to 1864 which is that early period shortly after it was discovered where the origin of the manuscript and the details pertaining to it were being debated in the English media, in the newspapers. Now the thing is, brethren, we still have the record of those debates. Those newspaper articles are still in existence. And you can access them, and I'm going to tell you how as we go along. But the reason I mark that particular time period, 1859 to 1864, is because that's the time period where Tischendorf came forward with the manuscript. That's when he began to publish where he obtained the manuscript. And I'll make more sense of that later, here shortly. And then you had Constantine Simonides who came forward and claimed he was the real author. And he first began to make that claim in 1860. And from 1860 to 1864, the reason I point to 1864 is because that is when Simonides published a final work in which he continued to uphold his position that, yes, he was the real creator of the Sinai Codex. And then he bid farewell to England and then left. And it's uh, what happened to him is another area of debate that we're going to discuss as we go forward. Yet the British Library that houses the manuscript today, they have possession of the Codex Sinaiticus today. And I've been there, I've seen the manuscript uh, several years ago. But on their website, when they're giving the official history of Sinaiticus, they make no mention of these details, which of course are of critical importance. But back to the uh, back to the audio clip that we played here just a few minutes ago. There at the beginning, 
from the BBC documentary. Notice what they conclude because of Codex Sinaiticus. Because they say there are 23,000 revisions, corrections in them. And we only played part of the clip, but the uh, you hear the narrator in there. And then you hear uh, an expert come in, and that's Dr. Scott McKendrick. And he is the head of Western Manuscripts at the British Library. And he is the chief curator over the Codex Sinaiticus project, which is where they went through page by page on the pro- uh, project and counted up all of the corrections. And I've heard him talk about this before. I interviewed him in person. Those of you who have seen Tears Among the Wheat or A Lamp in the Dark, you've seen our original interviews with Dr. McKendrick. And what you heard in that audio clip was uh, the BBC interview with him about the Codex. And what he, when he talks about it, he talks about how the scribes who were working on this manuscript were essentially disagreeing with what the manuscript should, should say and what various passages of the scriptures should be. And so they're basically saying, no, don't put this there, put that. No, not this, that. No, take that out. No, put this in. Back and forth, back and forth. An average of 30 times per page, it is said, for a total of 23,000 revisions throughout this manuscript. That is called today, this is the manuscript that they call one of the, the oldest and most reliable right alongside its sister manuscript, Codex Vaticanus. But just think about that for a minute. A manuscript full of all of these changes and revisions and so on that have been warned about since it first emerged. And so they say this is the oldest record of the Bible complete that we have, and there's 23,000 revisions. There have to be theological reasons for this, why it demonstrates, as the narrator said, the instability of the gospel story. In other words, early Christians did not really know what to believe. And they were arguing and debating about what the Bible should say. Therefore, they conclude, it could not be the immutable word of God meaning the inspired, inerrant Word of God. And so this they use to support the modern argument that the Bible was written by men and it's a man-made document. And that's why it's so important, brethren, when you're reading in your Bible, and I only gave one instance there at the introduction, talking about the last chapter of Mark and the last 12 verses of Mark. Where notice what happens while they're including those verses in most Bibles today. They also cast the doubtful footnote there. Telling us that the the oldest and most reliable manuscripts do not include those verses. And this is something else we're going to talk about later on. But before we get to those details, let's talk about the... uh, Let's do an overview of the discovery of the manuscript, and what the real history of Codex Sinaiticus is. Now, if you go read about it, they'll tell you 
Uh, people will speculate that they call it a 4th century manuscript. They date it about the middle of the 4th century. There are those who have speculated that it was commissioned by Constantine the Great, the ancient Roman emperor, and so on. But all of that, you know, others, the critics of it, argue that it was an ancient Alexandrian codex created by the Gnostics and this sort of thing. It's important that we understand right from the beginning that all of those histories, whether they're favorable or not, about Codex Sinaiticus, all of that is speculative history. In other words, it comes from the imaginations of men. People just saying, well, I think maybe this and maybe that and so on. This manuscript was unseen until 1844. There's no clear record of Codex Sinaiticus anywhere until 1844. That's very important to understand. Now, the British Library has uh, entered an earlier date, which we'll talk about, but the hard evidence, the clear evidence, the kind that would hold up in court, is there's no record of this until 1844. And so, uh, and that is when Constantine von Tischendorf discovered the first 43 leaves, or pages, if you will, but they call them leaves, the first 43 leaves of the Codex. And he discovered them at St. Catherine's Monastery, which is a Greek Orthodox monastery at the base of what is called Mount Sinai in Egypt. And it has been called Mount Sinai for more than a thousand years. There are those who, the reason I say it that way, there are those who doubt Uh, whether or not that is the real Mount Sinai. There are others who argue that uh, the real Mount Sinai is in Arabia, because the Bible says that it's in Arabia. Uh, But then that's that's according to Paul in Galatians uh, chapter 4 and verse 25. But now this is not the purpose of our discussion. I'm just making you aware that there is a debate and a controversy about it. There's a documentary that you might uh, check out called The Search for the Real Mount Sinai, which presents a lot of interesting information. But just so you know, uh, the, the real location of the real Mount Sinai is a debated issue. But nevertheless, at the base of what is called Mount Sinai in Egypt, there is an ancient monastery that's been there since about the 4th century. And it, was, it originally began by the uh, mother of Constantine the Great, Helen. His mother is said to have founded it originally as a shrine to the burning bush of Moses. They claimed that they had found the tree that was the burning bush where Moses talked with God centuries earlier. And so this became a shrine, and over time... Uh, It developed into a monastery and for more than a thousand years has been a Greek Orthodox monastery and a place where uh, ancient manuscripts and writings and things like that from the ancient world could be found. And this is what ultimately drew uh, von Tischendorf to go to St. Catherine's Monastery because he knew that this was one of those places where you would find ancient uh, texts. So, but what's the backdrop here? What's going on with Constantine von Tischendorf before he gets to St. Catherine's Monastery in 1844? Understanding this is very important. 
Understanding it is very important. The context of his journey. Because Tischendorf was, he fell into the community of uh, what you would call higher critics. And it was the higher critics who ultimately developed the uh, critical text beginning in 1870. And the critical Greek text is the text that would replace Textus Receptus, which was the original Greek that had been collated and perfected, if you will, in as much as is possible, by the reformers, beginning with Erasmus of uh, Rotterdam, as we talk about in our film, uh, A Lamp in the Dark. Erasmus began the process, and then it was uh, picked up and carried on for roughly a 100 years. But the time frame, just to give you the dates, begins about 1516. 1516, that's when Erasmus's first edition of the collated Greek text uh, is first published as a result of all the Greek texts that came from Eastern Europe into Western Europe as a result of the fall of Constantinople. Those uh, manuscripts are collated, compared one with another, and so on, and developed into a series of editions that reached their climax in 1633. So it's a little over a hundred years, but in 1633, that's where the Elzevir brothers publish what they call the text received by all the received text or textus receptus. And this was the Greek text that was used for uh, the Bibles of the Reformation. Everything from uh, Luther's German Bible to the Tyndale Bible, the Coverdale Bible, the Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible and its revisions, and then ultimately the King James of 1611, and then the, the various editions of the King James up to the 1769, which is where they had uh, corrected uh, any mistakes or errors that had existed in the uh, previous uh, editions of the King James Bible. And what most people are reading today when they refer to the King James translation, the authorized version, is the 1769. But it's still considered the King James Bible. And this was the Bible, the Bible, right up until uh, the Bible for English-speaking people, until you get up into the late 19th century. And then you have uh, a revolution that takes place in the history of the Bible. Uh, And the revolution really began as a result of Codex Sinaiticus. This is one of the reasons why it's so important. But before this, Tischendorf was a higher critic. And higher criticism was developed specifically by the Catholic Church and by the Jesuit order as a weapon against Protestantism. It was part of the Counter-Reformation. Now, the man known as the father of higher criticism... Uh, is a Catholic priest named Richard Simon, a 17th century Catholic priest named Richard Simon. Now, higher criticism is also called historic criticism. And the reason for that is because what it basically is, is the practice of going through the history of the Bible and playing games with certain dates and events in history in such a way as to try and prove that the Bible cannot be the inspired, inerrant word of God at any level. 
to try and prove that the Bible is simply a man-made book that is full of errors and problems. That's key. And uh, while there's many things we could say about it, I'm going to read one quote about Richard Simon. And this comes from the book, The History of New Testament Research by William Baird. And Baird says this, he says that Richard Simon sharpened historical criticism into a weapon that could be used in the attack on Protestantism's most fundamental error, the doctrine of sola scriptura. The doctrine of sola scriptura, that was the key. Sola scriptura, which means only the scriptures, or that the Bible alone is the word of God. And of course, Rome does not believe that. To this day, Rome does not believe that. Rome believes it must be the Bible plus the teachings of the Pope and the Holy See and whatever the Catholic Church and the Vatican decide is doctrine, that all of that collectively must be seen as the Word of God. And, of course, Protestantism and the Reformation rejected that notion, that it's only the Bible, only the Scripture that we must hearken to. And so the Jesuits and Rome collectively had to come up with a way to fight that, and to do so, they developed higher criticism. And they give to themselves the title Higher Critics. I personally believe that is somewhat of, somewhat of an elitist title that they've given to themselves to give a false impression. But in reality, what it means, higher critics are essentially those who do not believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And, of course, after hundreds of years of developing higher criticism, the crown jewel of the critics was Codex Sinaiticus, and still is today. But before we go into more details about Sinaiticus, I want you to hear an audio clip from Dr. Ian Paisley, the former First Minister of Northern Ireland, and his comments, he's a historic Protestant minister, and I want you to hear his comments about Rome's involvement and the Jesuits' involvement with higher criticism and how it was developed specifically to destroy faith in the Bible as the Word of God. Here it is. And it's not the Word of man. It's the Word of God. Now, of course, Rome used to burn the Bibles. She used to burn the people that translated them. She used to burn the people that read them. But that didn't succeed. So she decided upon another scheme, that she would place her Jesuit priests in the training of Protestant ministers. And so into the universities of Germany, Rome set at work the whole structure of unbelieving higher criticism. And she had in the universities men who sought to destroy belief in the Bible. And we became cursed with what was known as higher criticism. And young men of their faith in the Bible destroyed in the universities and in the training colleges. And so the men that came out to be ordained didn't believe the book. They didn't believe the creeds of the church. They didn't believe in the historic Christian faith. And they set to work to destroy the faith. 
Okay, so that was Dr. Ian Paisley. Dr. Ian Paisley, the former First Minister of Northern Ireland. And notice there with Dr. Paisley, there's no question in his mind that the unbelieving uh, apparatus of higher criticism that's been sown into our colleges and universities was the work of Rome and the Jesuit order in particular. And that the focus of higher criticism is to destroy the faith of men in the Bible. So that people will not believe that the Bible is the word of God. And if you study the whole apparatus of higher critical thought and argumentation, it's all argued from the place of unbelief. That's why he calls it unbelieving higher criticism, because that's exactly what it is. And this is very significant because higher criticism is the community uh, from which Constantine von Tischendorf comes into the picture. He was essentially a German higher critic. Not only that, but he was working with the Roman Catholic Church for years before he discovered Codex Sinaiticus. And in fact, he's at the Vatican in 1843, meeting with Pope Gregory XVI, and being welcomed by the cardinals there. And one cardinal in particular, a famous cardinal named uh, Mezzofanti, who was a world-famous linguist, he was said to have spoken at least some you know, 70 languages fluently. And if you go read the histories of Mezzofanti, they say he was so brilliant and so capable at dialects and various languages that he could speak in a completely foreign language in such a way that the people from that part of the world or from that country uh, believed that he was one of their people because he was, he was so detailed and so talented at mastering languages. Well, Mezzofanti ends up writing Tischendorf a poem in Greek and you know, giving him this praise uh, in some sort of Greek uh, verse when Tischendorf arrives at the Vatican. Now, all of this, of course, is very strange because Tischendorf is a Protestant scholar. And Pope Gregory at the time and his predecessor had been condemning the Protestant Bible societies. They were There was no great friendship with Protestantism. And in fact, as we point out in Tears Among the Wheat, during this same era the Vatican was still conducting the Inquisition underground. And this is being reported by ministers like uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, W.C. Brownlee, Dr. H. Grattan Guinness, and others. So uh, these were not conspiracy writers who were drumming up these ideas. The Italian revolutionaries, when they had gone into Rome and captured the city, they opened up the papal dungeons, and there they discovered the Inquisition going on and these underground ovens where they had lowered condemned victims into them and had them burned alive. You also find, if you read the writings of uh, Giuseppe Garibaldi, the famous Italian general, in his book, The Rule of the Monk, he writes about how they went into the convents, and there they found evidence of infanticide in every convent, he says, without exception because the priesthood of Rome was known for seducing young women, for uh, seducing the nuns in the convents, and they would get pregnant, 
And then when they had children, the children were killed. They were murdered. And Garibaldi writes about this specifically. And he says this, there was evidence of this in every convent that they uncovered. So this is the environment. This is the Rome that Tischendorf befriended and was embraced by. But let's take a moment here and let's talk about, I want to make the point about the impact of Codex Sinaiticus and how it undermined the traditional Greek text. Now, we talked about this before, how essentially it led to the replacement of Textus Receptus with what is today called the critical Greek text. The critical Greek text that begins with Westcott and Hort and their committee of 1870 up to 1881. And then in the 20th century, it's developed, it's picked up by Kurt Aland, and it's developed into the Nessel Aland Greek text, which is what it's known today. But it really begins as a result of the discovery of Codex Sinaiticus. And to show that to you, I want to play another audio clip now. This is from that same BBC documentary. Listen to what the documentary has to say about the impact of Sinaiticus as it pertains to the King James Bible. When he was shown the Codex Sinaiticus, Tischendorf recognized its enormous significance. Here was a manuscript that offered unique insights into scripture and which made scholars reevaluate the Bible that Victorian Christians had relied on. The King James Bible, sturdy and black on the shelves, was, was thought to be perfect and errant by many people across the English-speaking world, which was mostly Bible-believing Protestants. But the fact of the matter was that scholars had known that the translations were all based on rather shaky evidence, shaky texts. So this is what drove von Tischendorf to go and search across the ancient scriptoria, as they were called, of the East, and to discover this spectacular Bible. Okay, so notice what she says, what this uh, this scholar is saying there. And she's a Cambridge scholar. And she's talking about how the King James Bible was sturdy and black on the shelves. People thought it was perfect, inerrant, etc. and so on, across the Protestant English-speaking world. Notice that comment. And then she says that scholars had known that it was based on rather shaky texts. Uh, she says. Now, the scholars she's referring to are not really scholars. They're the higher critics. That's who she's referring to. When she says scholars thought they were based on shaky texts, they're the unbelieving higher critics who had been making these arguments for several hundred years. Now, to give you an example of that, I'm going to read a quote here from a Trinity Bible Society article uh, this is from the Trinity Bible Society, and they said, quote, We must not permit our judgment to be overawed by great names in the realm of biblical scholarship, when it is so clearly evident that the distinguished scholars of the present century are merely reproducing the case presented by rationalists during the last 200 years. Nor should we fail to recognize that scholarship of this kind has degenerated into a skeptical crusade against the Bible, tending to lower it to the level of an ordinary book 
of merely human composition. That, in a nutshell, is higher criticism. And that's what has dominated modern biblical scholarship. But when the Cambridge scholar there in that audio clip from the BBC documentary, when she says that uh, scholars believe that the traditional Greek was based on rather shaky texts, she says, she's talking about the unbelieving higher critics. Those are the people who held to that view. And as we said earlier, this is the academic environment that Constantine von Tischendorf, uh, who was a German scholar, this is the environment that he came out of. But notice, according to this, at least this BBC documentary that we played the clip from, according to this BBC documentary, this is what caused people to question the King James Bible. And the scholar here is saying, this Cambridge scholar is saying that people thought that this Bible was perfect, perhaps inerrant, because not everybody held that view, per se. Uh, And some people think when I'm talking about this, they think that I'm promoting King James-only-ism and the philosophies and the arguments that go with that. That's really not what I'm saying at all. Uh, I believe, I mean, if you read the introduction to the King James Bible and what the King James translators themselves said, they themselves were not King James only in the way that the modern movement uh, has argued about the King James Bible. Now, my contention, brethren, just to help you to understand, because this does get to be a confusing issue at points, my contention is that generally I believe the traditional Greek text also called Textus Receptus, is the most accurate and faithful representation of the Word of God. And in English, I think that the King James translation is the most faithful, accurate representation of the Word of God that we have in the English language. However, I don't make the King James-only arguments because the King James translators didn't make the King James-only arguments. They looked back and all of the Bibles of the Reformation, and they called them all the Word of God. I generally believe that any passage of the Bible that is accurately translated from the original Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic into English, that any passage of Scripture, any verse of Scripture translated faithfully is the Word of God. And when you're talking about your modern Bibles, your modern Bibles certainly have a lot of problems to them. There's no question about that. But many modern Bibles tend to be a mix. And the best example I would give you would be the last chapter of Mark. The last chapter of Mark, the last 12 verses, not the last chapter, the last 12 verses, verses 9 through 20 in the Gospel of Mark, are omitted from the critical text, but are often included in many modern Bibles. But the way that they represented is they put this footnote in there and it's the footnote really in my opinion that's the corruption because it's very misleading because when they refer to the most ancient and supposedly quote-unquote reliable manuscripts they're not fully disclosing where those manuscripts came from and there are significant problems with those manuscripts far more so than the other 5,000 manuscripts that support uh, Textus Receptus that don't begin to have all the problems that uh, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus do. 
And then they set forth this deceptive footnote saying that these are uh, the oldest and most reliable manuscripts, whereas if the average person reading the Bible knew the history of those manuscripts, there's no way that they would think they were the most reliable. So back to our BBC documentary clip there, the, this Cambridge scholar, she says that uh, people had the King James Bible, many thought it was perfect, but now Codex Sinaiticus comes along and it causes them to reevaluate their view of the Bible. Now they're saying the King James, but at that point in history, the KJV was the Bible. And now Codex Sinaiticus shows up and it tells that they, they say, wow, this is the oldest Bible that's ever been found. The oldest Bible in history. The oldest complete copy of the New Testament. And this, now we've got to reevaluate everything. This is the impact that Codex Sinaiticus had on the academic world. And this would be the weapon, a chief weapon, that would be used by Westcott and Hort, and they would combine this with Codex Vaticanus, the other manuscript that comes out of the Vatican Library, and they created a completely new Greek text for the Bible. A completely new Greek text. And this is important to understand. I remember some years ago having a debate with uh, an old friend of mine who was a pastor, and we were debating the issue of what certain passages say in the Greek. And he said, well, in the Greek, in the original Greek, it says this, and he was really arguing against certain passages in the King James translation. And he said, well, in the Greek it says this. And I said to him, I said, which Greek? Which Greek are you referring to? And he hadn't thought about it. Many, many pastors, many teachers, many Christians are not aware that you have two completely different Greek texts that can underline the Bible, that can be the foundation, really, for the New Testament primarily. But is your New Testament based on Textus Receptus, or is it based on the critical Greek text? Those are your two primary choices. Most of your modern translations are based on the critical Greek. And that's the real controversy with them. It's it's not nearly so much the English. I mean, when you really get down to it, if you research this, you have to get past a lot of the superficial layers of argumentation. What it comes down to is what is actually written in the the foundation Greek that they're using for their translation. Because the translation can't be any better than the Greek that it's taken from. For example, you have the NASB, uh, New American Standard Bible. And it is touted as the most accurate word-for-word modern translation of the New Testament. But what it is, is it is the most accurate word-for-word translation of the critical Greek text. That's what it is. It's not the most accurate representation of the Greek, but of the critical text. And most people are not aware that there's a completely different Greek text out there. And, I, you know, to say completely different, I think is not fully accurate. Because in either case, 
90% of what's there, maybe even 95% of what's there, is very much the same. But there are a considerable amount of omissions from one text to the other, and there are significant changes from one text to the other. But the real damaging impact, brethren, the real damaging impact is the character of the Codex Sinaiticus. This is what really damaged the Bible through the 20th century. And I'll tell you why. The reason why is because of the 23,000 corrections or revisions in that text. That's the reason why. If you want to know why scholars feel perfectly justified to have all of these progressively uh, paraphrased Bibles, like the Message and so many other translations, quote-unquote translations out there, where they completely depart from anything that could be called a word-for-word translation, and they're just more and more paraphrased. What gives them, why do they think they can paraphrase the Bible? Well, the reason is because of Codex Sinaiticus. Because they say, well, the oldest Bible had all of these revisions. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of them, 23,000. Nobody really knew what the Bible was supposed to say. So it's really just a guideline. And it's really about what does the Bible mean to you? How do you interpret it? What do you think it says? What do you think it means? And this is what, I mean, Codex Sinaiticus is what has inspired this era of paraphrased Bibles that we've been assailed with through the 20th century. That's the reason why we have these progressive paraphrases. It's because, chiefly, of Codex Sinaiticus. Now, here is an article. This is an article from an atheist organization called the Coburg Atheist uh, out of Canada. Canadian News and Resources. Anyway, they've got an article that says, quote, evidence that the Bible has been altered. This was published in 2010. And here's their headline. They say, quote, the Bible is supposed to be an historical document. It is supposed to have the same content as when it was written, but it doesn't. It has been changed over the years, mostly in the early days when copies were made by hand. So if you believe it literally, you, you have to ask yourself, which version should I believe? This is not just the opinion of an atheist or even a group of atheists. This is the conclusion to be reached from studies by scholars of an ancient copy of the Bible, the Codex Sinaiticus, that was found 156 years ago and is now available online. And of course, there they're talking about the uh, obviously the Codex Sinaiticus project and the website that was established as a result, which is CodexSinaiticus.org, CodexSinaiticus.org. But notice the impact of Sinaiticus. It proves to the atheists that the Bible should not be trusted as the Word of God. Why? Because it's been changed, they say. It's been changed. 
Now, from atheists, we can understand this. Unfortunately, the same opinion is reached by many who profess to be Christians. Examples in modern times would be uh, Princeton theological professor Bruce Metzger, who was the leading authority on textual criticism in the 20th century. Metzger, who sat on the Nessel Allen Committee with the Jesuit Cardinal Carlo Martini, and they developed the Nessel Allen Greek text. Uh, Metzger's chief disciple was uh, Bart Ehrman. Ehrman, who wrote the book Misquoting Jesus and Other Books, where he's essentially denouncing the Bible, saying it cannot be the inspired, inerrant word of God. And the chief reason that they believe that is because of Codex Sinaiticus. And here is another article uh, published by the BBC News called The Rival to the Bible. The Rival to the Bible. The headline is, What is probably the oldest known Bible is being digitized reuniting its scattered parts for the first time since its discovery 160 years ago. It is markedly different from its modern equivalent. What's left out? For 1,500 years, the Codex Sinaiticus lay undisturbed in a Sinai monastery until it was found or stolen, as the monks say, in 1844. And then goes on. Now think about the title to this article, The Rival to the Bible, The Rival. You look up the word rival, it means literally a competitor, an opponent, an adversary, a contestant, something that competes with something else. They're referring to Codex Sinaiticus, calling it the rival to the Bible, essentially saying that whatever you believed or most of what you believed about the Bible is opposed by this particular manuscript. That's the view. In fact, this article goes on. It says, quote, For those who believe the Bible is the inerrant, unaltered word of God, there will be some very uncomfortable questions to answer. It shows there have been thousands of alterations to today's Bible. The Codex, probably the oldest we have, also has books which are missing from the authorized version, authorized version meaning the King James, that most Christians are familiar with today. And it does not have crucial verses relating to the resurrection. Now, of course, there they're referring to the Gospel of Mark. And it's very important to understand how the textual critics, with their dating process, have argued for years that Mark was supposedly the first gospel written. And then they argue that, uh, that, that Matthew and Luke and John were all copied from Mark to a greater or lesser extent, even though your early church writers did not believe that at all. They all believed that Matthew was the first gospel written, then Mark, then Luke, then John. That's the reason they're placed in that order in our Bibles today. Now, the reason that the higher critics have wanted to argue that Mark was the first gospel is because they found two manuscripts, Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus, that do not contain the last 12 verses of Mark. And from there, what they've wanted to argue is that, well, if Mark was the first gospel written, then it would prove in their mind that the resurrection account which is what's being described in the last 12 verses, 
in their mind it would prove that the resurrection story was added later on, that it was added by Matthew, added by Luke, added by John, that it was not part of the original story. And this is why they make the argument that Mark supposedly was the first gospel written. But in reality, there's absolutely no proof that Mark was the first gospel written. Even if it was, it's important to remember that 99% of the complete Gospels of Mark contain the last 12 verses that describe the resurrection. Prior to 1859, there was only one complete manuscript of the New Testament in Greek that did not contain the last 12 verses of Mark, and that was Codex Vaticanus. Now, for those who want to do more reading on this, I would recommend the book, The Last Twelve Verses of Mark by Dean John Bergen. Dean John Bergen, uh, who was a 19th century author, and he wrote about all of this favoritism that was being given to Vaticanus and Sinaiticus by the critics, which he disagreed with, obviously. But he writes about this extensively, and he defends those verses very, very well in great detail. Now, the critics have attempted to argue that there are other minuscules that supposedly are missing the last 12 verses. Uh, without going into too much detail, I will tell you if you investigate those minuscules, it turns out that the pages themselves are missing or that they're not proper manuscripts. So they don't really qualify in the debate. But look out for those arguments if you come across them. So what it comes down to is that prior to 1859, there was only one complete Greek manuscript that actually omitted the last 12 verses of Mark in a way that was deliberate, where nobody could argue that it was a deliberate omission. You couldn't say, well, the page was missing or something like that. It's very clear that Codex Vaticanus deliberately omitted those 12 verses. That's what we mean. Now, having said that, I believe that there is an agenda among the critics and certainly with the Vatican where these last 12 verses are concerned because this is one of the distinctive features of Codex Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. So Codex Vaticanus is first published then or presented to the public through Cardinal Mai in 1858. He publishes Vaticanus. Then in 1859, Tischendorf, quote-unquote, discovers the New Testament portion of Codex Sinaiticus at Mount Sinai. And then he publishes it. Now you had two manuscripts, two Greek manuscripts, that did not contain the last 12 verses of Mark. And furthermore, and, and most importantly, Codex Sinaiticus did not contain the last 12 verses of Mark in such a way that it was clear that those verses were deliberately omitted. In other words, the manuscript is flowing along, you get to the end of Mark, and it ends at verse 8, and just stops suddenly. And then it goes from Mark to the next Gospel. And that's how it's done. So, it ends up being a confirmation, and really the only confirmation, of Codex Vaticanus. Now, you have two manuscripts 
that have a very deliberate omission of those 12 verses. And can it be merely a coincidence that Cardinal Mai and the Vatican published Codex Vaticanus in 1858, that Tischendorf had met with Cardinal Mai years ago, right before he discovered the first 43 leaves of Sinaiticus, that Tischendorf had been working with the Vatican, working with the Catholic Church, in terms of developing Greek manuscripts that would conform to the Latin Vulgate, that this relationship with Rome was well established long before the discovery of Sinaiticus, and now it just so happens that Tischendorf discovers the one Greek manuscript that will provide confirmation for Codex Vaticanus that had been rejected by the Reformers for the previous 300 years. Is this all just a coincidence? And how is it that Sinaiticus, if Sinaiticus had been created by Constantine Simonides, as he said, how is it that Simonides would have omitted the last 12 verses of Mark? But the real question is, did Constantine Simonides omit the last 12 verses of Mark? Or did somebody else come in and tamper with his manuscript and change the ending of Mark later on? Well, according to his own testimony, Simonides claimed that after he finished doing the work on Codex Sinaiticus, somebody came in and tampered with the manuscript. Now, is there evidence that there was tampering with these last 12 verses of Mark? And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to play an audio clip from my interview with Dr. Scott McKendrick at the British Library a number of years ago when we talked about these last 12 verses and he explains what's going on with the last two pages of the Gospel of Mark. And listen to what he says. He describes how there was a change in scribes. The handwriting is actually different for the last uh, part of Mark's Gospel. But here's what he says. Listen. So you believe then that it was it was intentional that they left out the ending? Well, shall I give you the more complicated explanation? Sure, absolutely. Okay. This is a, a problematic part in the manuscript. We've talked about the corrections in this manuscript. Well, this is a very notable example where the original scribe of almost the entire New Testament in this manuscript is what we call uh, Scribe A, clearly got something wrong in a what we call a bifolium, so a, a set of two pages facing each other. Something went wrong because what we have in front of us here, across the page and on the, the other side of the page, each of those pages, is text written by one of the other scribes who acts uh, like an editor within the volume. He's the sort of, um, you know, the head head um, scribe in, in the team and so preceding this is written by A and then we come to these, these two leaves and it's written by what we call scribe D they're all anonymous we don't know the names of them so we have to make up these, these ways of referring to them people have explained one poss 
possible explanation in the past people have said oh well this is because um, scribe A actually wrote the longer version and it was decided uh, within the team that actually this shouldn't be the case and so that's why we have scribe D intervening and rewriting these two leads. Okay, so notice what he said. Let's just break it down there. He says that there's the main scribe for Codex Sinaiticus, whom they call Scribe A. Scribe A writes most of the Gospel of Mark, and then as it comes to the ending, in the last two pages, another scribe whom they call Scribe D steps in. And then Scribe D ends up writing this shorter ending. And Dr. McKendrick admits that there are those who have speculated in the past. This is not my speculation. This is the speculation of others who have said they believed that the original manuscript may have had the longer ending, but then somebody came in afterwards and changed it and wrote in the shorter ending. Now, to be fair to Dr. McKendrick, I have to tell you, he himself, and he goes on in the interview to say that he does not believe that that was the case because he does not believe that ultimately there would be enough room in the manuscript to fit all the verses in question. However, if you look at Codex Sinaiticus and you see the ending of Mark, there's a big blank space there where the last 12 verses would ordinarily be. And I believe that, especially if you're adjusting not just that space, but two entire pages, that a scribe could have adjusted both of those pages to fit all the verses in there. That's my theory, but I want you to know Dr. McKendrick does not agree. Okay, now that I've said that, now comes an even more important revelation. One of the arguments that was made by the critics in the 19th century against the idea that Simonides could have written the Codex Sinaiticus is that one of the scribes who worked on Codex Sinaiticus was also identified by Tischendorf as having worked on the Codex Vaticanus. In other words, there was one scribe who worked on the Vatican Manuscript who also made certain changes and so on to the Codex Sinaiticus. And what scribe do you think it was that was identified by Tischendorf? It was scribe D. Scribe D, the same scribe that Dr. McKendrick told us, wrote the shorter ending of Mark in Codex Sinaiticus. And this is another reason why I believe it's very possible that Tischendorf, working with, with Cardinal Mai, Cardinal Angelo Mai, who was a Jesuit scribe and librarian at the Vatican, and they had a relationship, and Cardinal Mai had been working on Codex Vaticanus for some 30 years, and Tischendorf meets with Cardinal Mai right before he discovers Codex Sinaiticus, I believe the two of them could very well have tampered with both manuscripts to make it appear that they had been created in the same scriptorium, which is very strange because there's some 3,000 differences between them in the New Testament alone. 
and yet they're said to be sister manuscripts by the critics today. Now, I want to read you a quote very quickly, and this is from the book New Testament Textual Criticism by James Keith Elliott. And he says specifically, quote, Tischendorf thought Hand D, that is Scribe D, of Codex Sinaiticus was the same as Hand B, or Scribe B, of Codex Vaticanus. All right? Then he goes on to say, he says, quote, Another relevant consideration is the fact that Vaticanus and Sinaiticus both end their text of Mark with the same verse. One of the features of Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus is that they virtually alone among New Testament manuscripts end Mark at 16 verse 8. Okay, you guys, this concludes the first part of our presentation. Now as we go to Disc 2, we are going to read the detailed letter that Constantine Simonides published in the newspapers about how he created the Codex Sinaiticus.